You're listening to Seeing and Believing, a film and television podcast that searches for the sacred on screen. I'm Wade Bearden. And I'm Kevin McLenathan. Wade, I have some bad news, though. The legally dubious methods we've used to keep this two-man operation afloat have finally been discovered, and it's time for you and me to go on the run. Kevin, I I knew we shouldn't have milked the wrong cow. The people at Chick-fil-A were not happy. It's like they always say, never milk the wrong cow in podcasting. Listeners, we begin our show today with a review of Kelly Reichert's new film, First Cow. We're also going to be reviewing the new Hulu original film starring Andy Samberg and Kristen Milioti, the existential romantic comedy, Palm Springs. All that's coming up on this very moving episode of Seeing and Believing. What's your name? King Lou. They call me Cookie. It's the getting started that's the puzzle. No way for poor men to start. You have a cow. First cow in the territory. It's ain't a place for cows. No, it's no place for white men either. I sense opportunity here. Seems dangerous. So is anything worth doing? Listeners, This is episode 256 of Seeing and Believing, and that was a clip from Kelly Reichert's First Cow. We're going to be hopping into our review here in a moment. Kevin, we have not been to the movie theaters in a while, but we're holding down the fort, as people have probably guessed from our intro, with our comedy. Yeah, the uh, dad jokes are still alive and well in seeing and believing universe, but it felt appropriate for for this film because this is first cow surprised me by having at least two dad jokes of its own mm. uh, over the course of its runtime. So I feel like that fits. Yeah, I know. I, I think it fits perfectly. Let's go ahead and jump into this review. We are finally talking about Kelly Reichert's new film, First Cow. Sadly, the movie had just hit theaters in select cities before the country went into a temporary lockdown. Now, finally, all of these months later, we have a chance to talk about the movie. To get us started, here's the official synopsis. Two travelers, played by John Magaro and Orion Lee, on the run from a band of vengeful hunters in the 1820s Northwest, dream of striking it rich. But their tenuous plan to make their fortune on the frontier comes to rely on the secret use of a landowner's prized dairy cow. Kevin, in episode 245, 11 episodes ago, it doesn't feel like that long ago, but it's been 11 episodes, we ranked the films of Kelly Reichert. And for the first time, and probably the only time in seeing and believing history, we 100% agreed with each other's list. They were they were the same list. Regarding First Cow, what are your overall impressions of the film? And what do you wager we agree on this Reichert project too? Oh man, I, I, I don't know. I, I almost hesitate to compare notes <laughs> on our particular rankings just because I, I want to keep the good times rolling from oh. uh, that uh, ranking episode where we just ended up with the exact same lists spontaneously that was pretty good um as far as the film goes i did like this film 
quite a bit. I feel like it was definitely worth the wait after really hoping to see it in theaters and then obviously not getting a chance to, and just waiting, waiting, waiting for it finally to become available. I have to say it was worth the wait for me, and I would say that this is one of Reichert's best films. I'd probably even put it at number two on on my list, so just below Meek's cutoff, just above certain women. I think it's that good, um, and there's a lot to talk about with it, so I'm looking forward to digging into it. the moment of truth has arrived, though, Wade. What was your reaction I'm, to I'm First trying Cow? not to laugh and cut you off, but as I was thinking about the film, I was like, yeah, I think it's number two on my list, right below Meek's cutoff. So our our list is still the same. I like this movie uh, quite a bit, and this is this film does a lot of stuff right. I I love just kind of going into this world. It feels so real and i heard somebody comment on the movie and they said the the mud feels like mud from the 1820s and that sounds strange and it is kind of a weird thing to say but it definitely feels true this is a movie that we fully inhabit and it's also one of those movies that at the at the core regardless of whether it's about capitalism or it's about global expansionism or it's about how the west was won at the root of this movie it's a film about two friends uh, people who form a bond with each other and they care for each other and that is uh, it's just a well-told story and so i i i am very excited to talk about this movie and yeah i, I think it met my expectations one of the things that I really like about the uh, lived-in quality that you just pointed out is how it, it's it's not just um, representative of Reichert's attention to period detail. Like it, it, it's not just an obsessive attention to creating a believable setting on screen. I mean, obviously it does that as well, but for this particular film, I really liked how it buttressed a lot of the film's themes, and particularly what I'm thinking about is a scene where the two main characters, uh, Orion, played by Orion Lee and John Magaro, um, they're together in uh, Lee's home for the first time and you know lee's trying lee's character is trying to be really hospitable he says you know sit down make yourself easy just uh i'll go start a fire and then he leaves uh to go outside to split wood uh laboriously to light uh some kindling using a flint and to slowly build up a fire so that he can actually you know, make something to make his guest feel comfortable. And not only is that obviously an accurate depiction of what went into building a fire in the Wild West where there just weren't any amenities and, you know, it wasn't as technologically advanced as later, uh, as later ages, obviously, but it really goes to show just how much, how much effort went into being hospitable and being friendly and showing your friendship to somebody. It wasn't as easy as simply saying, you know, sit down, take a load off. I'll just, you know, go to the tap and get you a drink of water or put a, you know, a kettle on the, on the stove. It was something that took so much effort and there was a process and a good length of time involved in that. And that 
Reichert uses to really show just uh, the relationship that's over the course of the film forged between these two men is is meaningful because of how much effort just even the smallest bits of extending that kind of care to another person involves. And I just, I love how she's able to suggest that just by observing what these characters do as a matter of course in their lives. Yeah, and that's a, it's a great scene and it stands out because this environment feels so unhospitable. Now, the the scenes in the woods, the nature scenes are ominous, they're beautiful. We almost feel like one could live in the forest away from human civilization and have an easier time with it than being at this fort or this settlement in the Northwest just because of everything that's going on and because of the people who are living there and the goals of the people who are living there. And because of that, when we come across a character who is hospitable, who offers mercy who offers protection that stands out and i think it revolves around the theme that reichert has here and and that's being seen being seen by someone being given not just their uh attention but having someone truly look at you as a person, not as a commodity or as someone who has to do a particular job, but as a person. And the form of the movie takes that premise and kind of runs with it. I love a lot of these kind of reoccurring shots where the camera is uh, its peering through a window into the outside. And we get the sense that there are insiders and there are outsiders here. There are people in power and people who don't have power. And because of that, the people who don't have power have to do something to make it, to get that power. And I love what one of the characters says that, hey, in order to be successful, you might have to commit a crime. You need some sort of leg up because of the way this territory works, uh, which says something about the entire endeavor that the characters uh, take, but also it says something about their friendship. And their friendship is uh, based on trust, and they genuinely care for each other as friends. And that that is a warm fire in a harsh environment. And uh, it, it's really beautiful here. And Riker really contrasts the, the life of... Uh, uh, in human society with a a life that's much more um, about living in relationship, not just with other people, but with, with uh, the creation around them. So the, uh, the film kind of opens with this really peaceful scene of John McGarrow's character, Cookie, uh, foraging for mushrooms in the forest and the camera focuses on his hands as they very gently, you know, pluck mushrooms out of the soil. He finds a a lizard that's kind of been stunned by the cold lying on its back, and he very gently sets the lizard back on its feet and lets it go on its way. Um, the in in a later scene where Cookie is actually milking the the cow of the title, he just very gently, you know greets the cow almost like an equal and just kind of carries on a low-key conversation while he's 
while he's milking her. And these scenes have a gentleness and a peace to them that is really contrasted sharply with the world of the settlers who are uh, settling the Oregon territory. You know, the, we go from the mushroom foraging scene to the scene back at the camp where Cookie is the, the camp cook. And almost immediately, uh, there's a fight, that, there's an argument that breaks out because uh, one guy wants a certain kind of food. And then there's another fight that breaks out because uh, one man thinks that another man is drinking more than his fair share of the booze. And those scenes just are couldn't be thrown into starker relief by the gentleness of the earlier scene. And that's kind of what Record is doing, is suggesting that the pressures that are brought to bear on individuals by society and by the need to scrap and strive in order to survive takes us maybe away from uh, an earlier state, maybe a, a, a more harmonious state where it's more about just being caretakers you know almost like the uh almost like the original uh commission to adam and eve to be caretakers of creation we get the sense that cookie is capable of doing that and loves doing that even uh it's just the other forces that uh, society kind of bring to bear on him that kind of throw that out of whack and force uh, some some bad decisions to be made and uh, eventually lead to some unfortunate consequences. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and, and all the characters here are... Humanity in this film is a part of this vast network that's bigger than them. So they rely on the mushrooms that they find. They're able to make certain recipes because they have blueberries or because they need milk from a cow. And you'll notice that the plot is driven as much by animals in this film as by people. Uh, There is this, I love the scene where the cow comes into this settlement fort area for the first time. It's floating on this barge and everybody's kind of standing and and Reichert doesn't make it this big moment in the sense of like there's this, this swelling of music or anything like that. But it is captivating, and it reminded me of when a a neighbor drives their brand new sports car down the street into their driveway for the first time, and everybody's just kind of watching it. There's this moment, this cow, it's the first cow, but it's also very important. A cat moves the film along. It basically ushers the film into its third act, and then at the very beginning of the film, a dog kind of brings the story to light so animals are kind of all around us we are a part of something bigger we are part of a big network and the way that we even care for these animals uh, reflects how we care for nature but we also must rely on those animals if we want to survive we need all of this around us and we cannot abuse the environment uh, because we're going to be essentially uh, cutting off ourselves and I, I i love those details and i mentioned this before you know we could we could talk about that we could talk about uh, the way this film looks at the economy uh, people who are attempting to get a leg up some have said you know it's an indictment against capitalism we could deal with all of that and i think i think reichard kind of leaves most of that up to us but at the core what makes this 
movie work is it's not just a statement about XYZ. It is the story of two people within this environment trying to survive and forming this friendship. And, and I think that's why I care for this movie as much as I do, because I really do gravitate to these, uh, these characters and their performances are really fantastic, especially uh, John Mangaro. He is really wonderful as, as Cookie. He's, he's a little strange. I don't think there's any doubting that he's a little bit strange. He's a little odd. Uh, but he's also way out of his environment here. He's he's timid. He's quiet. He's scared. He's not someone who's made for 1820s Pacific Northwest, and that's why he needs someone else in order to survive. We, we all kind of you know need each other, which works into that whole vast network thing that I was talking about just a second ago. Yeah, well, it's no accident that the the quotation, the title card that opens up this film is a quote from William Blake, the bird a nest, the spider a web, man friendship. And that is, I mean, it's obviously sort of a thesis statement for the, in, the entire film, but it really, as we observe how Reichert films these two men together and kind of just lets the, lets the actors... Uh, natural abilities draw out the the warmth in their relationship and the comfort they eventually find in each other's friendship. That's really what makes that quote come alive, not just as a thesis statement, but also as almost a a, a statement of of what ought to be. The you know we we know kind of from the beginning of the film how these two men are going to end up. We we see essentially their final resting place in the modern day framing device that that opens up the film just two skeletons lying side by side uh in in the dirt and there's something that in, in the way that Reichert films that that feels it feels right it feels like the a, a companion to the shot of Cookie's gentle hands plucking those mushrooms out of the soil. It feels like it's natural to find not just a lone skeleton, but two skeletons next to each other. And I think it's, you know, comparing this to Reichert's earlier film, Old Joy, it really does seem like Reichert and her screenwriting partner, Jonathan Raymond, may be two of the foremost chroniclers of male friendship that we have in American cinema right now. It's just... It's wonderful how they're able to portray friendship in a way that doesn't feel like like the Fast and the Furious movies, which are constantly talking about how like friend you know friends are like family and family is <laughs> all that matters. But, you know, it's which you know nothing against those films, but it's just it's all very very obvious and and on the nose. Reichert's strategy is a lot more naturalistic, a lot more lived in. She's the sort of filmmaker who is, I, I really like how film critic Mike D'Angelo puts it. He says that she's subtle without being obscure. And I think that that's a perfect way to describe how she sketches out the male friendships in so many of her films. Yeah. And I'm, I'm glad you brought up Jonathan Raymond and we had him on the show how oh, years ago, maybe five years ago. And I want to go back and listen to our conversation with him because we, we actually had a pretty long conversation. He came on as a guest. It wasn't just an, an interview. And he's done so much with Reichard. And this is 
this film is based on a work, either a short story or a novel by him. And he does just a fantastic job of working through these relationships. And then too, he, the combination between him and Riker, they, they do such a fantastic job of, of, of small details. I'm just kind of putting you in this world. And I mentioned that you're grounded, you're there, but the details also reveal characters and they reveal longings. And one good example of that here uh, is, is the little biscuits that, that are made. And nearly everyone who eats the biscuits that's made by this, this duo, uh, it reminds them of a past relationship. It reminds them of home. And it's just a nice touch because it's this, it's, once again, it's this gentleness in a harsh environment. Individuals, they, they just want, they want one of those biscuits and, and they enjoy it. And there's something satisfying there. But it also says um, that all of them, as they, as they kind of wander and as they search for success and they try to make uh, refinement out of this uncivilized world, uh, that they're all kind of longing for a place where, where they do belong. And they are kind of longing for a place to call home. They're longing for relationships uh, where they are fully known and fully seen. And I think that's just powerful here. And uh, as I'm watching this movie, of course, thinking about uh, faith and thinking about um, the the body of Christ, also thinking about being known by our uh, creator, because there is this sense that creation is is powerful here. And it uh, reminds me of the creator of that creation. And so a lot kind of going on in this film. And if you blink... You'll miss it, but if you're paying attention, it just it just grows richer and richer throughout its runtime. And, and Reichardt loves to pay attention, right? Like this is a film that I I find there, there's so much more to it than just a, a simple story about two friends kind of trying to uh, you know develop a business and and uh, make their fortunes together. It is a very engaging story. I mean, by by the end of the film, you're almost on you're you're on the edge of your seat because you want them to succeed so badly, but there's this foreboding sense that it's not going to go according to plan. So it's very satisfying on a narrative level. But Reichert is also able to suggest so much through this story, simply through well chosen details. This is a a film that really is about America. Um, and specifically about how we are kind of, uh, our, our history is that we're a collection of people who left home and are trying to make home somewhere else. The reason that Cookie and, and King Lou's business kicks, uh, takes off so much is that the biscuits that Cookie makes, rem- the taste of them reminds their customers of a place they've they've come from, or you know, like you said, relationships that they've had in the past. Uh, one one of their customers, the the rich man who they are using his cow for the milk, he he has one of the biscuits and he says this this tastes of England to me, and he describes exactly the part of England that he's thinking of, and Riker uses the very these various reactions to really show that these are all people who are kind of not homeless, but they're all homesick. They all desire home. And by crowding the frames with the the frame with 
so many diverse peoples. I mean, there's, you know, there's uh, Native Americans side by side with Scotsmen, side by side with African Americans, side by side with uh, Chinese immigrants, and they're all kind of thrown together, and they're all trying to scratch out a life for themselves in this untamed West, and they all desire kind of a home. And that's something that Riker is able to explore, even as she tells this simple, engaging story about two characters trying to make it. Yeah, and I love how she equates kind of what you're talking about to the universal nature of this story. She could have just started it in the 1820s, but we get this um, uh, we get this beginning uh, where it is set in the modern day, and there's an opening shot of a boat, a shipping boat, coming across the river, which mirrors the cow coming into this uh, fort. And then you talked a little bit about the transition from modern day uh, back to this period. And what I noticed too is uh, when the cut is made, there isn't this, it's not necessarily pronounced. It is, like you mentioned, natural. The I don't know if the film stock or the color temperature changes at all, which would usually happen in a movie like this because, hey, we're trying to tell you that this we've gone back in time. But Riker doesn't do that. We get a, a shot of this hand kind of picking up the mushrooms, and then we get this, this plucky guitar uh, soundtrack in the background and the score. And so we, we kind of get the sense after a bit that, okay, we have jumped, but there's this connectivity that, hey, what's happened then is also happening now. And uh, we, we, it certainly feels like we're in the Wild West digitally. Uh, it, there's, there's this new kind of territory around us. We're in this kind of different world now. And we're still looking for those same things. We're looking for connection. We're looking for home. We're looking to be known. And um, the story that is set in the 1820s uh, definitely has much to say uh, for us today. Listeners, that is our review of First Cow. It's currently available uh, to rent and purchase online. So make sure you do that. Kevin, I have one more question. A number of people have said this is the best film of the year so far. Are you there or close to there? I'm close to there. I, I was actually, you know, I watched it not long before jumping into recording with you. And so I'm, I'm still kind of working out exactly how I might fall in that situation. But I would be surprised if this weren't somewhere on my top 10 list by the end of 2020. I think it's really special. Yeah, yeah. I, I don't know if I would say it's the my favorite so far, but uh, it's, it's, uh, it's definitely... Uh, in contention uh, for that. So listeners, let us know what you think of First Cow after you watch it. Make sure to tweet us at cbeliefpod, at cbeliefpod. You can also email us, seeingandbelievingcapc at gmail.com. If you feel like we're a broken record and we're kind of singing Kelly Reichert's praises over and over again, we want to talk about a movie where the same day happens over and over again. We're going to be coming back in just a moment with our review of Palm Springs. Don't go anywhere. The high drive's been up just the same, but I've been spinning down. The story come crashing back to earth, 
And I will wake up in the same town The same bed, the same room filled with same things Do the hated job with the same old man You know he's pulling my strings But there's a place I can't escape Be the one, you know I'm in control Fight the good fight every day Behind the screen, they love me so That song is Hard Drive Hero by The Grumbles. We want to take an opportunity, and as we do every week, thank all of you who support us out there on the internet. One way to support us is via our Patreon campaign. We have a number of different donation levels, and with each of those comes some great perks. One of our favorite levels is the What Can You Buy for $5 level. And Kevin, I was was thinking about it this week. I had a little extra time. And it came to me, maybe I could ask you, what could someone buy for five bucks? Well, we just were talking about Riker's first cow, which is all about, you know, the Oregon Territory and trappers and, you know, coonskin caps and deerskin jackets. So I kind of think that five dollars might get you some maybe more unconventional animal based clothing items. So like maybe a stingray cape or a, you know, a koala scarf, all humanely made, of course, but it seems like that would be a, you know, a little something to add to your clothing uh, line if you were interested in doing such things. So yeah. $5 seems like a steal. Yeah, yeah. And, and like you said, humanely created, uh, because that's what that's what we're all about here at Sam Believing. Listeners, <laughs> right? Like, what kind of what kind of a monster would make a koala like actually like mm-hmm. hurt a poor koala in order to make a clothing item? That just doesn't seem right. No, uh, we're big protectors of the koalas, and uh, you can be too if you uh, help us on our Patreon campaign. No, we really do appreciate all of our listeners who support us. Just hop on over to Patreon.com forward slash seeing underscore believing underscore podcast and you know what kevin i always appreciate it when we get feedback on social media and it seems like this last episode we, we, we got some people talking about greyhound some people talking about the vast of night and uh, it was fun to see that come across on twitter yeah i feel like we got uh, quite a bit of of listener uh listeners kind of talking to us about what they thought about these these various films we heard from christy zinn on twitter who said actually had a recommendation for us for a change uh she says if you enjoyed the vast of night even a little bit then you should watch tales from the loop absolutely beautiful subtle sci-fi thanks so much for that recommendation christy i have not seen tales from the loop um i don't know if i've heard that all that much about it but I was digging the vibe of the Vast of Night, at least. So if, if Tales from the Loop kind of captures something similar, then sounds pretty good to me. Yeah, I, d- I need to check it out as well. We also got a tweet from Jordan Pickering, and he says, I don't understand why calling him the Hanks, thanks, but I pronounce it the Hanks, hasn't caught on. I don't know either, Kevin. I... I guess I'm, I'm can, maybe part of the reason why it hasn't caught on is the pronunciation of it doesn't, it, it's unclear to me. Should it be T. Hanks? 
you know, since it is Tom Hanks that we're talking about, it should be T. Hanks, should be Th Hanks, should be Tanks. I, I just, it's a gray area. And I think that that is maybe what's keeping it from seeing wider adoption. Yeah. Well, that's my theory anyway. It, I'm sticking to that's it. That's why I tried to pronounce it with a little bit of flair. And hopefully, you know, that will help it, uh, you know, catch on. Lindsay Dunn also tweeted us. And she says, I still need to write out my thoughts about Vast of Night. I don't know if I've read, I'm trying to think, I don't know if I've read a full review of the Vast of Night, but anybody, Lindsay, anyone out there who has a review that you've written of the film, make sure to tweet it at us. I'd, I'd love to go through that because it was, yeah, I, like you said, Kevin, I was just digging the vibe and I'd, I'd like to dig into it just, you know, a little bit more. Yeah, for sure. Thanks so much to all the listeners who wrote in and let us know their thoughts. Uh, listeners who haven't written in, you can always uh, let us know your thoughts and maybe we'll read your feedback on the air, so to speak. You can tweet us at cbelievepod or email us at seeingandbelievingcapc at gmail.com. Thanks so much. It's going to be a beautiful wedding. Here you are, standing on the precipice of something so much bigger than anyone here. But always remember, you are not alone. I don't think that we met. I'm Sarah. Niles. Hi. It's going to be a beautiful wedding. Good day so far? Today, tomorrow, it's all the same. You, what is going on? Hey, get out of the water, girl! Guess you followed me. It's one of those infinite time loop situations you might have heard about. That I might have heard about? Yeah. Welcome back to the second half of our show. And if you get deja vu every time you hear that sentence come out of my mouth here at the beginning of every second segment, well, then you're not alone. And it seems fitting somehow that I would just stick with that for the movie that we're going to be reviewing on the second half of the episode today, Wade. No, I think that's a great idea because we we have a Groundhog Day situation before us. Yeah, that's right. And Groundhog Day is definitely a touchpoint for Max Barbacow's uh, latest film, Palm Springs, starring Andy Samberg and Kristen Milioti, which takes the same basic premise of a day that gets relived over and over and over again and takes it to some new places. Here's the film's official synopsis. When carefree Niles, played by Samberg, and reluctant maid of honor, Sarah, played by Miliati, have a chance encounter at a Palm Springs wedding, things get complicated as they are unable to escape the venue, themselves, or each other. So there's definitely a, an existential vibe to this film that takes the basic premise of Groundhog Day, but adds a twist. What if Bill Murray in that film had had a partner who was experiencing the same time loop as he did? And what if Groundhog Day's existentialism was applied to a slightly different form in the form of a romantic comedy. So maybe we can start there, Wade. Um, this is a premise that is most famous because it was used by Groundhog Day, but it's shown up from time to time in many other films, including this one, which seems fitting somehow for 
a story about the same thing getting repeated over and over. My question for you is, did that basic story template work for you in the form that Palm Springs takes, or did you find it to not quite live up to the promise of its high concept? Yeah, I mean, that's a great question because this is becoming a subgenre, like the infinite time loop. These characters are stuck in a day, and... I, I like that premise a lot. I tell people, I, I would love to watch movies where this happens. I always hate the sections of the films where the character wakes up again for the first time and they, they just kind of thrash about confused and they try to figure out what's going on. I don't like that section, but I do like the premise. What I appreciate about Palm Springs, and really kind of what I'm looking for in a movie like this, is a film like this needs to at least acknowledge Groundhog Day's existence. And that doesn't mean that the movie is a part of the film's universe, that Groundhog Day is a part of Palm Springs' universe. But when writing the film, the writers, the the, the director they need to understand that we've seen this before, that we kind of know what's happening. The person over the course of however many days is supposed to change their life and turn their life around and eventually they'll be freed. Uh, we've, we're used to that. Change it up. And I, I think that what we get with Palm Springs is, is, is an extra layer of that. We know that Groundhog Day has happened, and this film almost wants to comment on Groundhog Day. So just initially, I, I think the concept works, and uh, in this film, it, it doesn't succeed uh, 100% of the time, uh, but more often than not, I really found myself enjoying this film and, and laughing with these characters and really kind of thinking about the way this time loop is put together and how these characters are trying or maybe even not trying to get out of it. Yeah, it's it's funny, Wade. I I can't be 100% sure that this isn't recency bias talking. It's been a while since I've seen Groundhog Day and of course I just recently saw Palm Springs, but after that initial viewing, my current mood is that Groundhog Day walked so that Palm Springs could run. <laughs> and maybe that's a little bit of a controversial opinion to say that this might be the better film, but I don't know. I think I really did like this more than I liked Groundhog Day. And part of it is I, I just think that maybe I click a little bit more with the comic sensibility of Barbara Cow and his two lead actors. I just think that there's something a little bit more engaging about the way the story is told in this film than in Groundhog Day. I also like that something about Groundhog Day that always kind of maybe bothered me just a little bit. It doesn't, you know, it's not a fatal flaw for the film, but I always was a little bit bothered that kind of the the key to Bill Murray escaping the loop that he's in kind of rests around a relationship. You know, he he the, the film hinges on whether he can stop being selfish, but the way that he stops being selfish is by essentially uh, finding a way to um, romance another person in an unselfish way. 
And something about that just felt not quite, not quite right. Like it seemed like there was more that could have been explored in that concept that kind of got flattened into uh, a romance story. And I think what, a, what I appreciate about Palm Springs is that it has a lot more ways into the different forms that this conflict can take. I mean, obviously there is a, a central romance, and I think that Sandberg and Miliati make a really great romantic comedy uh, couple in this in this film, but it doesn't just stop with their relationship or with how that relationship informs their attempts to escape this time loop. It also really digs, I think, a little bit deeper into what what it means to kind of be caught in an endless cycle and how that would be experienced individually together and by very, very different people. There's, of course, J.K. Simmons as Roy, who is also trapped in the same loop and the way that he tends to deal with his own imprisonment just differs so wildly uh, from Sandberg's and Miliati's characters that it gives me a lot more food for thought. And I also just thought it was just a lot funnier. So I don't know. I, I really liked this film a lot. Yeah, I, I liked it too. And it, it well, it's, it's funny. And we've talked about a number of comedies that have uh, been released recently that, that just, they, you know, they, they weren't funny. And I think with this film too, you've got the chemistry, you've got the unique angle, you've got the unique story. But it raises the question of what does it mean? And this might sound strange, but what does it what does it mean to be a human being? Do you need to be inside of time and progress as a human in order to experience life? And obviously these characters are still within time. They're just in this time loop, but they can't ever move forward. They can't actually move out of their present mistakes because they wake up within those mistakes every single day. Now, what is the answer? Well, for there's this large section of the film, and it's super fun, where the characters just enjoy doing whatever they want with no consequences. And we have to ask ourselves, well, can life be experienced that way? And in, in one sense, I think this is a nice retort to the just live in the, in the moment platitude. How do we experience life? Should there be progression? Should there be seasons in life? Or uh, can we find happiness in kind of just living aimlessly and enjoying ourselves? And I think as, as a result of that, uh, the movie has much more to say than I think people give it credit for. I, I've, I have read some reviews about this, and, and people seem to think that it exalts a, a life where you just kind of do whatever you want. Well, I, I don't think it does that. Um, it, it's a film that's very pessimistic, and I think it can be, but it also understands that as human beings, we can find happiness in in the mundanity of life, in in taking responsibility on ourselves. So I I, th I think this film is pretty smart too. Instead of just well made or, or funny, like it 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 definitely has something to say. I agree, and I think the I mean it is true that the section of the film where uh, Sandberg and, and Miliati, uh, Niles and Sarah are kind of just doing whatever they want. You know they they. 
They take control of an airplane and then they crash it to the ground just because it's crazy. They're constantly drunk. They just enjoy living like in pure anarchy because, you know, why not, essentially? And the part of the film that follows that phase of their existence is a lot of fun. It's really funny. I laughed a lot at it. But the film doesn't just stop there, so I wouldn't say that it valorizes that kind of impulse in the slightest. In fact, uh, towards the end of the film, we do get a picture of one character who has essentially made peace with the cycle that they're caught in, and rather than striving against it or just embracing the void, this person just kind of learns to be content with living through the same mundane things every single day and enjoying the the small little uh, gifts and bits of grace that pop up over the course of that day. It's, it's essentially a picture of, I don't know, like a, a spiritual contentment where the important thing isn't some sort of personal fulfillment or wanting something and striving after something you can't have, but just accepting what has been given to you and uh, enjoying it and really seeing it for the simple goodness that it is. And I think that that's a really touching iteration on the Groundhog Day formula that I think sets this film apart. Yeah, and in it too, it's kind of along those lines, if, if you are looking at this film, I, I felt like anyway that this film argued that mundane moments were important. If you think about it, Groundhog Day, they go to this this town that nobody wants to be in, and it, it's not a place you want to get stuck in. If you think of Palm Springs, Palm Springs is a place with with the reputation that, hey, people with money usually go here for a nice, quiet vacation. So it's this paradise of sorts. And as a result, these characters, like we mentioned, can do whatever they want. And yet, it only brings so much fulfillment. And I was, I was reading this book not too long ago, and they were talking about um, an experiment that was done. And they were showing uh, individuals all of these kind of pictures in a row. Uh, at a, they were all kind of running at uh, a certain time. So they'd be on the screen for a few seconds, and they were all the same picture. And then they would flash another object that was red on the screen for the same amount of time. So they'd see all these pictures, they were the same, they'd see this red image, and then all the pictures again. And most of the people who responded within the study said that uh, the red image was up longer than the others. In fact, it wasn't. It was the the same time. And uh, we can see how when you are kind of doing the same things every day, it feels like time kind of speeds up because your brain is used to what's happening. Uh, when you do something different, uh, your brain kind of wakes up and it begins to notice things that it didn't have to notice before. And uh, as I'm watching this movie, uh, realizing that mundane moments are are important and we see so much of life there. And it also makes the, the moments that are not mundane uh, even more lively because we get to see all of the changes in life. And I... I appreciate kind of the once again it's the this mature look at this film and and I think this film has a lot to say about uh, family life and about 
long-term relationships and about responsibility. There's so much there that um, that we can appreciate, uh, but it takes us moving forward in life, and that's not always easy to do. And we see that uh, in Andy Samberg's character, Niles. He he's afraid at times at the possibility of moving forward. Yeah, Samberg's character is interesting in this film. You think about Groundhog Day, and we we stick with Bill Murray the entire time in that film, and we you know we kind of follow him as he tries to figure out what's going on, then he tries to escape, and then finally he kind of gives himself over to, he, he resigns himself to being trapped. When we first meet Andy Samberg's character, he has been in this loop for a very long time, just a, so long that he can't even remember how long it's been. And so he's already kind of embraced the void, so to speak. And so when we, uh, when Miliati's character, Sarah, uh, ends up in the same Titan loop. They we we enjoy the contrast between Sandberg's nihilism and Miliadi's. Uh, she still wants to get out somehow, and that friction really creates an interesting contrast and allows the film to explore differing approaches to the worry that life is is meaningless or that you know no your actions don't have meaning or that. You know, life kind of creeps in, creeps on this petty pace from day to day, and just nothing ever changes. And the film, you know, really explores what kind of mindset embraces the meaninglessness of it, and what kind of mindset tries to tries to either overcome it or find a way to make peace with it and find meaning in it somehow. And I think that that's uh, inherently engaging, and it also makes the romantic relationship that develops over the course of this ordeal for these two characters, I think a lot more interesting than the relationship that we see in Groundhog Day, because they're both they're both active agents and they're both very different people who, you know, find each other in, in this difficulty, but they don't think the same way about it. And the film really does a good job of unpacking why they react to their predicament in in different ways and just even the different shades that their predicament takes for each of them we find out uh, about halfway through the film that one of the characters wakes up in an extremely compromising position so that the time loop for this character is is a special kind of torture because they have to relive this horrible mistake they made over and over and over and have it constantly be uh, something that they're reminded of. And I think that even though the film maybe doesn't dig into that part of it as much as I wish it would have, which might be my, my one quibble with the film, I do think that the fact that it's in there and invites the audience to contemplate, well, what would happen if the worst thing that you've ever done was something you had to constantly relive instead of letting it recede into the past? What would that be like? And I think that's a very engaging question for this film to be asking. Yeah, yeah. And I, I think that that's probably uh, just the small criticism I have for this movie is uh, some of those themes I think could have been explored a, a bit more. At one point, Andy Samberg's character talks about the things that you can do, the violent things that you can do to hurt other people or even things that are done to you in this time loop. And you wake up 
and it's all been restarted, but yet he says, you know, you, you stay with those. Those things stay with you. And I would have liked to seen a little bit more of that, how those problems can follow you from one day to the next. And you mentioned the romantic uh, relationship at the center of this film. And I think, too, part of the writing, uh, they do a good job of, the film does a, a good job of making the conflict between them feel natural. So when you're watching a romantic comedy, you're like, okay, here's what's going to happen. The characters are going to get together, and then they're going to have a fight, and then you know, they're going to get back together. Uh, and it most of the time, it does not feel natural. It, it feels like, hey, just sit down and have a conversation, and everything will be okay. Uh, but here, it here it, 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 it feels great. And I, I almost hope most of our listeners watch the movie before listening to this review, because there are so many little details and little twists that come out uh, throughout the movie and I didn't I hadn't seen even the trailer for this film and it was nice to just kind of progress and to see oh wow yeah okay yeah and just little wrinkles that appear and uh, yeah it's it's just a, a lot of fun and uh, I really did enjoy it listeners that is our review of Palm Springs it's currently playing on Hulu it's a Hulu original film every streaming service has a new original film uh, these days Kevin what can I say Make sure to let us know, listeners, what you think about the movie Winch Winch you see it. Uh, listeners, make sure to let us know what you think of the movie once you see it. Make sure to tweet us at cbeliefpod at cbeliefpod or email us seeing and believing capc at gmail.com. Kevin, this is the end of the show, and at this point, we offer a recommendation to our listeners from the world of television and or film. People need something to watch to stream nowadays more than ever. What can you recommend this week? <laughs> well, uh, you know, I, I, I like the film that I'm about to recommend quite a bit, and I like it so much that I can't escape the nagging feeling that this may have been something that I've recommended on an earlier episode. So listeners, if that is true and you are missing out on a fresh recommendation from me this week, uh, apologies in advance, but I really wanted to highlight the 2007 film The Assassination of Jesse James by the coward Robert Ford, directed by Andrew Dominic. I was in mind of this film because of First Cow and how both films do a really good job of just... Looking at the American West of the 19th century and finding really compelling stories to draw out of the well-worn myths that have grown up around that time period in, in our country's history. This film, of course, the title is self-explanatory. Everybody kind of knows a story of the outlaw Jesse James, uh, who was killed by uh, the famous coward Robert Ford. Robert Ford shoots him in the back is the way the story goes. And Dominic's film explores that that's well-worn story a little bit deeper and finds really interesting things to say about how celebrity works, how regret works, how hero how hero worship works, and how the tendency of uh, American myth-making to create uh, heroes and villains, and maybe it's not a uniquely American thing, but it has, in this film, a uniquely American hue. Dominic explores just why and how it works the way it does, and the effect that it can have on 
the actual human beings that are central to those myths. So I think it's really special. Uh, we've talked before about how this film with Roger Deakins as the cinematographer is just absolutely gorgeous on a visual level. I also think that has the story and the directing to match. So if you haven't had a chance to check it out yet, it's a really good one. Uh, so yeah, check it out. Yeah, it's a great film. I just really do like that movie a lot. The cinematography is wonderful. The performances are wonderful. You know, Brad Pitt, who I keep thinking more and more, he's he's one of my favorite actors working today. Is uh, he's he's fantastic there. And um, I also brought Kevin a western movie to recommend, just because we're talking about First Cow, and I just saw for the first time the 1946 film from John Ford, My Darling Clementine. Now, I I think I watched Tombstone in the last year. A lot of people told me I needed to watch the film. I thought it was fine. I thought it was good. Uh, This story, My Darling Clementine, is based on that story, uh, or that story is based on this story, which is based on the big battle that happened at the OK Corral in Tombstone, Arizona. And what I appreciate about this movie that stars, of course, Henry Fonda as uh, Wyatt Earp is that the character building and, and the story builds really to that, that fight so well that even though the, the, the gunfight is only, I don't know, it's only a few minutes long, it, it works like gangbusters. And I... Uh, was very surprised because I'm, you know, thinking this huge shootout and maybe, maybe more of a modern conception of, of a western, and I really get something that, that's a, uh, it's a lot more special. So, our listeners who have not seen this, uh, make sure to check it out. There is a Criterion version of the film, uh, and I watched that uh, for the, I watched that whenever I saw this film. So it's it's out there. It's great. So make sure you rent it from the Criterion Collection or sign up for their service or maybe get it through the library. It's a, a fantastic. Uh, uh, fantastic images. I, I mean, just the, the remastering is, uh, it's really wonderful. Well, if I'm not mistaken, there is a, one of those 50% off Criterion sales ongoing right now. And I think it'll still be going on when this episode gets released. So, you know, not to be a Criterion shill or anything, but I'm going to be a Criterion shill and say that that is also an option open to our listeners if they want to take you up on this recommendation. And by the way, Criterion, if you're listening, you know, maybe maybe sending us a, a little bit of something something to incentivize further <laughs> shilling is okay by me. Yes, uh, <laughs> if you send me David Burns' true stories on uh, Blu-ray, Criterion Blu-ray, I will be your best friend, Criterion Collection, uh, forever and always. <laughs> Yeah, uh, I think that that's a, not too much to ask. No, no, no. Listeners, we want to thank you for listening to this week's episode. It's brought to you by ChristandPopCulture.com. Our producer is Jonathan Clausen, who every week helps us to search for the sacred on screen. Once again, make sure to rate and review the podcast. Send us your thoughts on the movies we reviewed today. You can also send us recommendations. What would you like to see us tackle? Uh, at this point in time, and and we'd love to be able to consider that. I'm Wade Bearden. My co-host is Kevin McLenathan. And until next week, this is Seeing and Believing. You have been listening to Seeing and Believing, an official production of the Christ and Pop Culture Podcast Network. 
Please rate and review the show in iTunes and check out our other shows at christandpopculture.com slash network. Theme music by Alexander Osborne and Lindsay Miz, used under Creative Commons License 3.0.